if, if we can't communicate mm-hmm. our ideas to the general public, we are not going to influence policy. And policy mm-hmm. will be done to us, and it won't be policy mm-hmm. we like. So I'm not denying yep. this is hard. Yep. Like me in college, we went into tech because we kind of didn't really like talking to people. We preferred writing code. <laughs> but there will be some of us who can bridge the gap. And there will be mm-hmm. others of us who don't want to talk to people in that policy way, but could also contribute to the good of society, of the planet, by doing more ethical tech. So there are a lot of different ways, and I don't want to minimize that problem because I think it's, it's real, but how do we solve mm-hmm. it? We solve it like we solve any other problem. We just solve it. We do it. We figure it out. From Cobalt headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, Bruce Schneier, a gentleman who really requires no introduction. And for fun, Bruce, I'd like to ask you, say you're traveling in a foreign country, you meet someone at a coffee shop, they ask you what you do. How do you respond to that question? You know, it's actually surprisingly hard. I do a lot of things. What I often say is that I'm a security technologist. And I use that phrase because it's broad, because I really work at the intersection of security, technology, and people, and increasingly policy. Cool. Thank you so much. You know, I understand that your father was an attorney, and as a child, you did not want to be an attorney. I'm curious to know if you would share a little bit more about that uh, with our listeners. What, why didn't you want to be an attorney when you were young? You know, when I was a kid, even in, in high school, I was very much doing math and science. I wasn't interested in any of the uh, people disciplines, any of the social sciences or the humanities. And I majored in college in physics because I was doing science because I wasn't, didn't really want to deal with people, which is actually odd because in my career, I've been increasingly dealing with people as, as my career progresses. And now I do public policy. I, I teach. I do seem to do more economics, sociology, and psychology than tech sometimes. But in the beginning, I was very much not wanting to do a people thing. Mm. And can you share with us, was there a turning point for you where you sort of decided, you know, oh, people, not so interested in people, much more interested in mathematics and physics and how things work. And then, you know, was there, was there a time in your life when that changed? How, did, how would you describe that progression of your interests? You know, I, I always say that my career was an endless series of generalizations. And I started out <laughs> doing cryptography, mathematical security, about as pure science as you can get. And that's what I worked in. That's what I wrote my first book on. And then I started looking at contexts. I'm always looking more meta. So after cryptography, I started writing about computer security and network security and then more general security technology. And then I started writing about the economics of security and the psychology of security, then the sociology of security. And you see the progression I'm, as I'm more and more people focused. And now I'm writing mm-hmm. a lot about the public policy of security. I'm teaching security policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. So slowly I morphed as I realized that 
insecurity, people are an inherent component. I mean, unlike, mm. I don't know, graphics where you, know, you use colors and you transform images and just working with the tech, security at its core has people, both as attackers and defenders. There's no such thing as security without people. So mm -hmm. in an effort to understand that, I'm sort of necessarily becoming more people focused. And it turns out that that's interesting, unlike you know, what my college self thought. <laughs> How would you describe yourself in college? What did college time Bruce uh, spend his time doing, if not um, talking to people about public policy? You know, uh, I, I, I did my work, I had my friends, we played D&D &D a lot. I mean, I think I had a normal, uh, normal college, but sort of as a major, I was a physics major. I, that, was, mm -hmm. that wasn't even engineering. That mm -hmm. was a theory. That was, I mean, physics is mathematics with boundary conditions. And that's really what I was doing and what I was focused on. Cool. You know, Bruce, you describe yourself as a meta, meta, meta person. I'm curious to know, I feel like you, there's the trees and there's the forest. You got a view because of the way that you see the world and because of the things that you're interested in that's beyond that, what do you see that other folks aren't seeing? I'm not sure I see anything no one else is seeing. I think the value I bring is in making connections and then making those understandable. You know, hmm. I, don't, I don't feel like I have the aha insight that no one else had. I think what I do is is see how things connect. And that's, you know, that meta, meta, meta I talk about. Uh, uh, most people are specialists and our society mm -hmm. tends to value specialists. I like generalists. Mm. I like people who, who see lots of things and can see connections between them because those connections are valuable and they're interesting. And in some mm -hmm. ways, those are unique. So that's where I mm -hmm. see my contribution. You know, more as a translator and a communicator. My first book was Applied Cryptography. It was a 600-page cryptography book written for programmers. Nothing in that book I invented. Nothing was new. But that book became a bestseller because it was the book that was understandable by others. Mm. What I was doing yep. was translating. I was taking this great mathematics and science and translating it so that regular people, I guess programmers, I don't know if those are regular people, could understand it, where they couldn't understand the, the, the academic paper or mm -hmm. the previous books. Very cool. You know, Bruce, I, I watched a video of a, a recent talk that you gave, and my understanding is you're talking about your latest book. And if, if I can sum up um, in sort of a uh, perhaps not an accurate way, but in the way that I understand it, um, some of your thoughts on security are, are that the internet and computers, you know, they, they were never intended or built uh, to support what they do today. Um, you know, so many things today are computers, and there are today, for technologists and for security professionals, moral and ethical implications. And I hear you advocating for 
some cross-pollination uh, between technologists and public policy people uh, and vice versa. Uh, and I'm curious to know uh, our audience as I understand it, is, is primarily technologists or people who are very interested in technology. Do you have any advice for these folks in terms of how we might educate ourselves in terms of public policy and, and the ways in which we might be able to get involved uh, and help out in this area? So this is something I am currently working on, and I wish the answer was cleaner than the answer I'm going to give, because it's hard. I think you're right that computers have entered every aspect of our life and society. And in security, we call this uh, changes in the threat model. Right? We design computer security. We design the internet with a particular usage in mind. And suddenly, it becomes critical to na national security. Right? The threat model changed. And wait, you know, those security assumptions we made in the 70s and the 80s no longer apply and what do we do now so it's definitely true that we need to really think about how our systems are being used and whether it is high-end systems with our power grid or our election systems or low-end systems that are toys and internet doohickeys that are made of the internet of things it's all different and I mm -hmm. am advocating what I'm calling public interest technologists, that we need techies like you know, the people I speak to, your listeners, to get involved in public policy. So what does that mean? Does that mean we should quit our jobs and run for Congress? Probably not. I don't think there's space for, for very many of those, or a couple would be nice. But we need to figure out how we can engage. So I have colleagues who have taken sabbaticals from their profitable tech careers to spend a year working on a congressional staff or at a uh, public policy NGO. I know technologists who are involved as advisors to these organizations and to elected officials. I know tech professors at Harvard who have taken a year or two to work at the Federal Trade Commission, at the Federal Communications Commission, right? Work at a government agency. Now, all of these are possible. They're not scalable at the moment, but those are different ways we can get involved. Even in doing what I do, which is writing and speaking and advocating, is a way to get involved. We're just moving to a world where technology is so critical to every aspect of public policy. And if we get the tech wrong, we're going to get the policy wrong. Now, and we see that when we look at voting machines, I mean, it's a, insecurity, voting machines, there's an area. Just going dark, the uh, FBI versus Apple endless battles in vulnerability, vulnerabilities and what the NSA should do about them. All of these things are important policy decisions with very, very deep technological components. Mm -hmm. you know, I, last mm -hmm. year, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, I think it was in the Senate, he was in a hearing, and one of the senators asked him, how does Facebook make money? Now, that's crazy on two levels. One, the senator didn't know 
And two, mm. there was no one on the senator's staff to say, excuse me, sir, that's a really stupid question. Don't say it on national <laughs> television. Wow. Yeah, interesting. Bruce, thank you so much for sharing with us your advice for tech folks and some practical ways in which tech folks who want to get in uh, want to get involved in public interest work uh, can can take breaks from their jobs and do that. Um, when I hear you describe this, you know, in my mind, I'm sort of picturing tech person takes time out of tech career uh, to get involved in in policy or otherwise public interest work. And the question I have for you is, what about ethics? What about uh, morality? Um, does, do you see that coming from the tech side, from the policy side? Does there need to be some sort of third party that says, okay, uh, let's try and make sure that the things we're doing are actually good for society? So I think ethics and morality come from everybody. Before I do that, I want to correct one thing. I'm not saying the yep. only way to get involved is to get involved full-time, to take a sabbatical, a year off your career at Facebook or Google. That's one mm -hmm. way. I think we can also mm -hmm. engage part-time. You know, many of us do activism, not full-time, but as, as an avocation, as something we do. And whether it's volunteer cool. for an organization who needs IT security help or needs to help unravel some IT policy or get involved as an advisor uh, to an elected official at state and local level or on a campaign. These are not all you know, full-time jobs. And I think most of us will be doing this part-time and also doing it inside our companies. Now we are seeing more people doing public interest tech work inside corporations, big ones, Right? The, the big surveillance capitalism behemoths, and also startups. And this sort of gets to your, your question about morality. I mean, traditionally, mm -hmm. Silicon Valley has been dominated by you know, white, middle-class, libertarian men that had a certain worldview. And it was apolitical, except for you know, government's layoff. And it turns out that, that we, as, as technologists, are more new wants than that. And as we become broader, more inclusive, we are building ethics and morality into everything we do. So it's mm. not like someone else is going to say, here, techies, here's some ethics. You now have an ethics module, <laughs> your, your techie yep. 1.1, <laughs> you know, now with ethics, that we have ethics. That when employees at uh, at Google say, we don't want to work on AI for the US Department of Defense, that is ethics. We can argue whether that was a good idea or a bad idea, but that is definitely an ethical argument. And we are mm -hmm. seeing that in many areas of tech, you know, not just about what we work on, but who we hire and how we run our companies. And this is all part of, I think, our industry maturing. And it's a good thing, and it's important. And policy, especially in security, is just another way for us as a community to say, you know, the things we do matter in the real world, and we need to think about that. It's not enough mm -hmm. to you know, build the techie tool, throw it over the wall, 
and see what happens, right? Not our fault if democracy crumbles. You know, we, we, we just made the app. That mm -hmm. in fact, this is part of what, of what we do. And we're seeing it more inside companies as well as without. So I think of public interest mm -hmm. tech very broadly. And you do technology for the FBI, you're doing public interest tech. Mm -hmm. If you're working in IT for an NGO that you know, helps human rights workers, you're doing public interest tech. If you're advising mm -hmm. a congressperson on a net neutrality law, you're doing public interest tech. Would you be interested in sharing with our listeners any thoughts you have on sort of spirituality or right or because I think when we get into sort of this ethics and morality thing, you know, maybe there's something that's deeply personal about that. You know, I think that you and I being Americans, we can say we value democracy. Not everyone values democracy. Um, we can say, you know, we, we value more inclusive work. Uh, we, we value including broader community. There is something to talk about here that mm -hmm. we are learning that exporting American values worldwide without giving anybody else a say in, in what those values are isn't really working out too well. And I think mm. this is a fundamental problem with the, the internet that we don't know how to solve yet. The internet is global and often we need one answer to these sort of ethical decisions. But the planet is not homogeneous in how they answer mm -hmm. the questions. For example, an example, yeah. the United States is a world outlier in free speech. Now, we probably think mm. we are right and the rest of the world is wrong, but it is unmistakable that it is different. So now mm -hmm. when a company like Facebook with a global footprint has to make one decision about free speech, what do they do? Do they export US anomalous values because they think it is morally right? Do they have some average that they figure out somehow? Do they make it different in different places? These are hard mm. questions. And as the internet starts moving into all these communities around the world where decisions that are made in Silicon Valley uh, affect ethnic minorities in Burma, in India, in, uh, everywhere in the world, suddenly these, these questions are, are really important and it's not obvious mm -hmm. how to answer them. Cool, thank you so much. Bruce, I know that one of, the, one of the things that you think about is security economics and I'm curious to know about your thoughts on public interest technologist economics. Why do tech people get paid so much and why do other folks get paid not as much? What's, right, so, what's up with that? Yeah, I think tech is paid so much because it's such a valuable skill. I mean, we all know that and a lot of people go into tech mm -hmm. for money. And, and when I talk about public mm -hmm. interest tech, I, I get a question all the time. You know, how do we make money? That if I go work mm -hmm. for the ACLU, I'm not gonna make the same amount of money I would make in Silicon Valley. And that's true, and there's no denying that. But I think the, the worry is overstated. So a lot of ways I model my thinking about public interest tech and public interest law. 
with the idea that attorneys mm. need to get involved in public policy. And many do. And ACLU, when they announce a position for a staff attorney that makes between one-third and one-tenth what an attorney would make in private practice or a corporate practice, they get hundreds of resumes of mm. people willing to give up the salary to do work that matters. I believe cool. very strongly that there will be hundreds of techies who would apply for a similar, for analogous job in the public interest tech space. It won't be everybody, and that's okay, but it'll be some people. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't worry about that. What would you say to technologists who might think, gosh, you know, working for a congressperson, you know, working, like I wouldn't even know what to do. I wouldn't even know how to communicate these people or worse, you know, these people just don't get it. Or maybe that's just not, maybe that's just not, that's not the type of person that, that we're encouraging I mean, to I mean, do I mean, that's true. And that's hard. <laughs> we, and we need to figure yeah. this out, right? If, if we can't communicate mm -hmm. our ideas to the general public, we are not going to influence policy. And policy mm -hmm. will be done to us. And it won't be policy mm -hmm. we like. So I'm not denying yep. this is hard. And right, like, yep. like me in college, we went into tech because we kind of didn't really like talking to people. We preferred writing <laughs> code. But there will be some of us who can bridge the gap. And there will be mm -hmm. others of us who don't want to talk to people in that policy way, but could also contribute to, to the good of, of society, of the planet, by doing more ethical tech. So there are a lot of different ways, and I don't want to minimize that problem because I think it's, it's real, but how do we solve mm -hmm. it? We solve it like we solve any other problem. We just solve it. We do it. We figure it out. Cool. And what about, you know, I'm curious, you, you are currently elected in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, I have never had the opportunity to sit in one of your classes. What type of folks are in those classes? What are, what are these types of folks interested in? I expect that these are different folks than the technologists that tend to listen to this particular podcast. And I'm curious about cross-pollination in the other direction. What sorts of advice might you give to, to folks who do have that understanding of public policy and might want to learn more about or influence tech. So this is the other direction and, and we need to do both, right? We've been talking about techies getting involved in public policy. And now we're talking about public policy professionals learning more tech. So I teach at the Harvard Kennedy School, which is a school of government. People are there for masters in public policy, masters in public administration. They are not technologists in any way. When I put up mm -hmm. you know, a math equation for the RSA algorithm, they all kind of panic because it's mm -hmm. math. Now, I think this is important as well. I mean, we need policy people to understand enough tech to believe it. I mean, I, I sometimes feel we're in a counter-enlightenment where expertise is not valued where someone who knows something about the science is 
sort of by definition suspect. And, and that's a bigger problem. And I'm just sort of working in one area of that, but it's an important one. So I'm trying to teach these students sort of enough computer security to understand the arguments, to be able to engage with actual technologists when new issues come up, up to understand kind of bullshit arguments, to sort of mm -hmm. know enough to know what's going on. And, and this feels like a doable thing. I mean, we expect our policy people to, our legislators expect especially, to legislate on topics they don't know about all the time, whether it is climate change or pharmaceutical policy or food production, you know, pretty much anything. People in Congress are not experts in any of these things. But you know, at least in the ideal world, they know how to engage experts and listen to them. You know, and I'd like mm -hmm. the experts to not be just lobbyists. I'd like them to be actual experts in the field. Right? That senator mm -hmm. who didn't know how Facebook made money is doing himself a disservice because he didn't sit mm -hmm. down with someone and ask, okay, tell me the technological contours of, you know, at the time it was, what Facebook could do about election interference, about propaganda. But that was the point of the hearing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I want him to come into that hearing with a grounding in the tech, and then he can work on the policy. Cool. Bruce, we're coming to uh, the end of our time today. And the final question I have for you is about education and about learning. And I'm curious to know if you have thoughts on you know, sort of the traditional American education system um, versus other methods that we have for learning. You know, I can, I can go on YouTube and I can look you up and I can hear you give an hour lecture at the Google campus. And then when I speak with you, I have the advantage of having heard that. Do you think that there's going to be a lot of change. Do you think there's an advantage to a lot of change in terms of the ways that we educate ourselves and the ways that we and, and maybe young people, I've got kids who are going to be in university in the year 2035. And, and what do you think the world might look like for, for folks like that? No, I don't know. I, I do see a lot of changes in education that we're learning that people learn differently. And the traditional American classroom style works for some people and not others. I mean, we all knew this growing up, but now we actually know it and now there are actual alternatives. I do worry about uh, the hollowing out of higher education, that schools like the one I'm at, Harvard, are, are doing great and schools that are a couple of tiers below are doing terrible in the power law mm -hmm. coming to, uh, to higher education. I think distance learning and uh, being able to take massive online courses is phenomenal, especially when it goes into areas that don't have other alternatives. And I think we need to be smarter about recognizing skills and expertise that might not come in the traditional ways. So I don't know what 2035 is going to bring, but I do know it's going to be different. So I maintain a resources page for public interest tech. And it is publicinteresttech.com with hyphens. So it's public-interest-tech.com. And there I have pretty much everything I have found 
on this. I have uh, people's writings. I have talks, everything I've written, everything everyone else has written. I maintain a list of university programs around the world that are trying to marry tech and policy. I maintain a list of NGOs and charities that are doing public interest tech work. And I urge anybody who has any interest in this to, uh, to go to that page and wander around and see what there is, see what's been written, see what other people are thinking, and then see how they can contribute. Fantastic. Bruce, thank you so, so much. Thanks for your contribution to society and to security and for encouraging us to think toward the future uh, and for, for pointing us towards uh, these resources. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt.io, a pen testing as a service company. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you enjoy podcasts. And don't forget to say hello. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.